as we are opening the seven seals of the scroll, the title deed to the earth, they correspond with seven uh, literal physical judgments on the earth. And then we get to the seventh seal, and we saw that was a silent prelude. What's quiet now? It's quiet in heaven, so what don't you hear that you normally heard in heaven? Worship, that's right. The theme of heaven is worship. That is the background all the time, the ambiance of heaven. And so you don't hear any worship for about an hour. It's quiet, about a half an hour, I'm sorry. And they are in awe, and they're in awe of the Holocaust, the divine fury really being poured out on the face of the earth. And I told you that's, the, that's a good evidence that there are no women in heaven, but I didn't get much of a laugh with that because it was quiet in heaven for a half hour. So, uh, but it didn't seem like you were too mad at the end, so uh, I thank you for being a good sport. Look at verse 2. Uh, chapter 8, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. How much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. That's some beautiful pageantry here, although we know these are actual things occurring. It's just lovely to think about that kind of worship that's going on and that your prayers and the prayers of all the saints come before the Lord constantly. Uh, verse 5, And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, threw it to the earth, and were there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And so you have this angel approach the throne of God, and this is really our transition into our passage tonight. Angel approaches the throne of God. Incense is in the censer he is holding. Uh, the angel takes fire from the altar, which is before God. And no doubt these prayers that he is taking, uh, they uh, perhaps are cries to God for the injustice towards his people. No doubt sorrow, regret, all these different types of prayers that people would offer up uh, during this time. Anyway, it prompts a response from heaven. And we have lightning, and we have thunder, and we have another earthquake. And this signals the beginning of the next set of judgments. Now, if you're on earth, and we've said this a few times, it's likely uh, that you would be able to follow these things chronologically. We know a beginning point, we know an end point, a seven-year span, and so we're not talking about stretching this over hundreds of years. We're talking about a very short time in which these things would take place. And it appears that these judgments announced by the trumpets follow an order. Those are the seals. And so when the seals would be finished, the trumpets would begin. Now, don't forget, we've said before, the reason for these judgments, they aren't uh, for their own use, just to pour out wrath on the earth because God is a vindictive God. God desires for men to come to repentance, and he is now using another means to bring people to faith. He's Even now, after all the rebellion, he's not willing that any should perish, uh, but he's not wooing his creation anymore. He is showing himself to be powerful, the rightful ruler of the earth, and this whole pageantry is the transfer of power from the prince of darkness to uh, Christ himself, who will take the, the title deed of the earth and it belongs to him anyway. So now that we have these trumpets, they're ready to sound, and we're at the end of the break for John, so I'd like you to look at verse 6, and we'll read all the way through 9, verse 2, and then we'll come back and go verse by verse through, okay? Verse 6, chapter 8, The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Verse 7, The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Verse 8. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and that had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10. 
The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Uh, the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Verse 13. Then I looked, John says, and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of it, like of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke, of the pit. Let's stop right there. I think with our time, we may not even get that far. But let's look back now as we read verse 7. Let's look at that first trumpet judgment. And you can find this in your notes. The first trumpet judgment is on plant life. That's chapter 7, on plant life. Look at verse 7. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass uh, was burned up. This is the judgment on vegetation. Uh, judgment on vegetation is a judgment on men because men cannot live without vegetation. Rainforests, protected woodlands, grasslands, everglades, everything that men have put a premium on, everything that we uh, realize and legislation has passed that we can't build there, we can't do anything there, we can't have a highway there, we can't put an oil well there. All this is all protected. The Lord takes a third of this away. Everything that we've put a premium on, He, he, he takes. Rainforests, protected woodlands, it doesn't matter. Uh, grass, trees, and it's a judgment on man because animals can't live without vegetation. And it may be a judgment in the form of oxygenation of the earth. There's a lot of different things that could be a result of a third of uh, the trees and all that destroyed. But I think it's interesting that we also see blood as a judgment here. We mentioned this a number of uh, weeks ago, that this is this is a cause for uh, a lot of discussion in the book of Revelation because uh, there's an appropriate types of judgments that are thrown to the earth. And you see blood often. And uh, maybe that blood is the blood that has cried out to God for those slain for the name of Christ throughout the ages. It's spoken of a lot. Uh, God says that um, the blood of the righteous and the blood of the innocent cry out to him. And so he uses blood here as a judgment. And uh, really, if you look at uh, you know the big picture here, you're ready to open an important scroll. There are seals on it, and people are singing, and trumpets for the big moment, and bowls being brought as gifts. And imagine the big picture, every part playing several roles. And here you see this first trumpet sound, and this is a judgment on plant life. And this judges men severely. And you see this. And uh, last night, how many, or last Sunday night, how many saw the forest fire up on the mountain as you left church? Uh, we just took a drive on up there to just uh, travel on. It was off past Ivy, Ivy Lake and all that subdivision on up to Coffee Road. And love Coffee Road. That was all on fire. It just occurred to me I was, as I was looking at that, that um, after this judgment, that's what you're going to see when you're looking all around. Uh, you're going to see a judgment on fire. You're going to see the earth, a third of the earth and the, tree, and the trees and the grass consumed. And you're going to be looking around and people who are here will see that. Now, second trumpet is a judgment on the seas. Look back at verse 8. A judgment on the seas. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
That's a great mountain. It's, it's probably an asteroid or something like that. Uh, this is not uh, something that men do not think about. I've got an article to read for you in just a moment. But um, it looks like a great mountain. It's on fire. It's likely an asteroid. It's going to strike the sea. Uh, if you compare the wording to verse 10, we're going to see two different uh, heavenly bodies strike the earth during the trumpet judgments. Uh, one-third of all the ships are gone. One-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the creatures. And then it says this interesting uh, uh, phrase, that had life. Uh, that's the word suke. It is um, likely those uh, things in the sea where there is breath, uh, differentiating between fish and plant life and those types of things. Uh, whales, dolphins, porpoise, turtles, seals, anything that lives in the sea but breathes air. And so it's likely the judgment is on them. Uh, it, all those that are in the sea, uh, one-third of them die. It could also mean fish, but there's a different word that could mean fish and could be speaking of uh, those types of things that could have been used if that was the intent. But uh, at least one-third of the animal life in the sea dies. A third of the ships are destroyed. That's not hard to imagine when you have a, a size of a mountain striking the sea at the speed that would be uh, striking the sea. You'd have a huge tsunami that which would destroy, I'm sure. Uh, well, the Lord says a third of them. It would destroy many, many thousands uh, of ships in the shipping industry. So you have floating around on one-third of the seas in the world the stinking, rotting, putrefying mass uh, of blood and, and dead animals. And so that sounds like a nice place uh, to live, right? Oceanfront property at that point would not be at a premium. But if uh, I just, you know, just wanted to kind of look and kind of see, do people still think about this? And over the years, I've kind of uh, just kind of checked in. This is an article from March the 27th, 2010. This is uh, about.com U.S. government information. And this, is, this story is by Robert Longley. I just want you to listen to this. You may think this perhaps is far-fetched. People are not thinking about this, but they really are. In fact, $3 million of your tax money every year is spent uh, making sure that nothing's going to hit the earth. But just listen to this article. That'll give you an idea that people do indeed uh, worry about this. This article says, uh, Robert Longley says, while NASA astronomers say the chances of the 1.2-mile-wide asteroid called 2002 NT7 actually hitting the earth on February 1st, 2019, are slim, they will be watching this and other orbiting doomsday rocks very closely. As reported on the, in the article about space, uh, asteroid on collision course with Earth, written in 2002, the asteroid 2002 NT7 has the potential to strike the Earth at over 64,000 miles per hour and delivering the explosive force of 1.2 million megatons of TNT. What is the U.S. government doing to protect us from the threat of Earth-approaching objects? While given less than uh, 1 in 250,000 chance of actually hitting the Earth, scientists at NASA's Near-Earth Object, that's NEO that we'll use throughout this uh, article, Near-Earth Object Program have no intention of turning their backs on 2002 NT7 or any of the other potentially hazardous asteroids discovered so far. Using the Sentry System, developed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, NEO observers continually scan the most current asteroid catalog to identify those objects with the greatest potential to hit the Earth over the next 100 years. These most threatening asteroids are cataloged in the current impact risk database. To each near-Earth approaching object, NEO assigns a risk impact factor based on the Torino impact hazard scale. There's a lot of time and research that have been going into worry about the impact of things from outer space. And if you look at our planet, uh, you can see that it's not been uh, too long since we've had impacts, and there certainly are craters everywhere, so I think that it's in people's minds that this perhaps is uh, a risk. 
But to each near-Earth approaching object, he, they assign a risk impact factor. According to the 10-point Torino scale, a rating of zero indicates the event has no likely consequences. A Torino scale rating of one indicates the event that merits careful monitoring. Even higher ratings indicate that progressively more concern is warranted. Asteroid 2002 NT7 is assigned a rating of one, merits careful monitoring. To further study near-Earth orbiting objects, the article goes on to say, there are potential threats and ways in which they may be prevented from impacting the Earth. NASA is currently undertaking this fascinating group of spacecraft missions to asteroids and comets. And you've read about that, I think, in the paper. Uh, calling them the only major natural hazard that we can effectively protect ourselves against. I think that's interesting, don't you? Uh, a 1.2-mile ride asteroid heading for the Earth, and we can potentially protect ourselves. NASA has suggested two possible methods of protecting the Earth from an asteroid or comet determined to be on a collision course. First one is destroying the object before it hits the Earth. The second is deflecting the object from its orbit before it hits the Earth. To destroy the Earth approaching object, astronauts would land a spacecraft on the surface of the object and use drills to bury nuclear bombs deep below the surface. Sounds like a movie that I watched once. Once the astronauts were a safe distance away, the bomb would be detonated, blowing the objects to pieces. Drawbacks to this approach include the difficulty and danger of the mission itself and the fact that many of the resulting asteroid fragments might still hit the Earth, resulting in massive damage and loss of life. In the deflection approach, powerful nuclear bombs would be exploded up to a half a mile away from the object. The radiation created by the blast would cause a thin layer of the object on the side nearest the explosion to vaporize and fly into space. The force of this material blasting into space would nudge or recoil the object in the opposite direction just enough to alter its orbit, causing it to miss the Earth. The nuclear weapons needed for the deflection method could be launched into position well in advance of the object's projected Earth impact. They say best defense is, uh, category is adequate warning. While these and other methods of protection have been considered, no definite plans have been fully developed. Scientists of the Asteroid and Comet Impact Division of NASA's Ames Research Center warn that at least 10 years would be necessary to send a spacecraft to intercept an incoming object and deflect it or destroy it. And to that end, says scientists, NEO's mission of detecting threatening objects is critical to survival. In the absence of active defense, Warning of the time and place of an impact would at least allow us to store food and supplies and to evaluate regions near ground zero where damage would be the greatest, says NASA. And I thought that that's, it's kind of the Lord to give them a heads up. For those who remain on the Earth, they will know at the close of the, sec of the seventh seal that there is a near-Earth approaching object. Would you not say that that's exactly what the Lord told us? In 1993, again in 1998, congressional hearings were held to study the impact hazard as a result, both NASA and the Air Force are now supporting programs to discover Earth-threatening objects. Congress currently budgets about $3 million per year for programs like the Near-Earth Object Project. While other governments have expressed concern about the impact hazard, none yet have yet funded any extensive surveys or related defense research. And finally, according to NASA, a soccer field-sized asteroid came within a mere 75,000 miles of Earth in June of 2002 and missed us by less than one-third of the distance to the moon. The asteroid's approach was the closest ever recorded by an object of its size. And so, as you can see, this is a, a thought that's not far away uh, from those who study the skies. Uh, they look at the Earth and the face of the Earth, they realize that it's been struck by uh, objects before, and so it is in their mind, and the Lord tells us, indeed, that is exactly what's going to happen during the, during the trumpet uh, judgments. And I think that we can really look at it like this as we think about these judgments, and particularly this one, 
that is the judgment on the seas where this great mountain, perhaps an asteroid, comes and one-third of the ships and one-third of the sea becomes blood and a third of the creatures that had life in them die. We can really look at it like this. In other words, man's failed to recognize, and this is really the, the, gift, the, the, the gifts of God are appropriate, the judgments of God are exactly appropriate. And uh, we look at this, recognize, and recognize this gift of God's creation, and uh, we don't recognize, as men do not, recognize that God has given it, and so God takes it away. And so God's uh, judgments are not arbitrary. Uh, man failed to give God glory for the wonderful things he's made, and so uh, the green grass and the plants and the trees and the sea and all the life that's in it, and, uh, and they've placed an importance, on, or they've, they've not given God glory for that, or they've placed an importance above that of humans, uh, I was talking to my wife about this before. We'll spend a million dollars to make sure a whale gets off the beach and back in the ocean. And we'll spend the same million dollars later to make sure as many babies as we can abort can be aborted. And it just seems that the world's completely out of, out of kilter with what should be right, right? And so the Lord just takes all these things that uh, we hold dear, the men hold dear, and think that are important and put a premium on, and he takes them all away. And so the world was, and remember, that, and never forget this, beloved, the world was made for you. Did you know that? And for me and for men. The Lord gave the world to men. He made it like he made it so that we could enjoy it. First Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And listen to this, okay? I want you to always remember this. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that great? Perhaps you weren't aware of that passage in the scriptures, but First Timothy 6.17 just tells people, listen, if you have uh, more than you need, you don't worry about that. Don't put your trust in those things. Don't be conceited. Be ready to share and realize that the Lord has provided you everything to enjoy. Okay? That's because that's the kind of, that's the nature the Lord is. And so he's given us richly all things to enjoy. If we look around our galaxy, uh, what do the planets look like, particularly in our solar system? I mean, think about Jupiter. All right? That's a, that's a perfect example as we compare it to Earth. The atmosphere of Jupiter is the largest planetary atmosphere in the solar system. Did you know that? And uh, scientists are not exactly sure where Jupiter becomes solid, but Jupiter is made up mostly of hydrogen and helium in roughly solar proportions. Uh, there are a number of other chemicals uh, present there, which include methane, ammonia, hydrogen, sulfide, and water. Sounds like a nice place to, to park your car, right? And uh, it has huge storms that rage across the surface with lightning that's much greater than what we have. And that's Jupiter. But if you look at this planet, what do you see? You see a richness, you see a beauty, you see the color and the smell and the environment. And so that's when the indictments then become obvious. And the judgments the Lord pours out on the earth then become obvious. He makes the place. He's going to wreck the place. And if you think about uh, people who desire uh, the world to be kept in a pristine condition, they're going to be really upset in that seven years, okay, if they survive. So the Lord, you know, the Lord owns the earth. He can wreck it if he wants to because he can make it back when he desires to. And so the indictments are obvious. God's gifts are spurned. The gift of his son, the gifts of the richness of life, all the peace, prosperity, forbearance, blessing, everything that comes as a result of Christ's suffering and uh, all the richness of the earth uh, become a testimony against the people who remain and just intensify the judgment. And that is very many, in a very real respect, is what we have as we look through the judgments we find in Revelation. Now, let's look back uh, and uh, look back at verse 10. Man won't glorify God, God takes it away. Third judgment is a judgment on flowing water. The judgment on flowing water. Verse 10 says this, the third angel sounded. A great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. 
And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Of course, it could be, uh, it could be another asteroid, it could be a comet. Many uh, think that's perhaps it. Burning like a torch, very brilliant, would have a tail that would follow it into our environment. Comet made of ice, easily dissolved in fresh water. And uh, anyway, a third of the fresh drinking water was made bitter, which made it unfit for human consumption. And the comparison is made of wormwood, that's what they called it, similar to a desert sagebrush, uh, which is poisonous to humans, causing what appears to be drunkenness, eventually leading to death. But anyway, it is a judgment on flowing water, on the rivers and the springs of water uh, for those who are on the earth. Fourth judgment is a judgment on the heavens. Remember, these are all temporary judgments. These are not... Uh, long judgments, but any judgment that judges all the flowing water for any length of time is going to be too long, right? And when we can only go uh, a couple of days without water, realize that that's a serious judgment on the earth. Many will die as a result of that. That's exactly what the scriptures say will happen. Revelation 8:12. This is the fourth judgment is on the heavens. Fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. So the third of them would be darkened, or turned black. That's the way you can understand that. They would be turned black, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. And of course, you can just imagine what that will do to the calendar, you know, what that will do to the schedules of the world, to energy consumption, to climate, to growing seasons, to weather. All these things directly impacted by the sun and the absence of it. You lose a third of the sun. I'm not even sure of all the problems that will cause in heaven. A third part of the moon is gone. A third part of the stars are gone. And another way to say that is a third of the day was without light and a third of the night also. So, and once again, this is a temporary judgment because if we move forward to Revelation 16, uh, verses 8 and 9, we realize the sun is intensified. And so a temporary time where there's a third less of the sun, a third less of the moon, a third part of the stars are gone. And so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it. So, and a night the same way. Now, Revelation 8, 13. So we've got the judgment on the heavens. Then I looked, verse 13, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Now that word eagle is uh, subject to lots of discussion and many uh, commentaries written about it. It's the word ahitos, eagle. It is used in Revelation three times, only two other times outside the book of Revelation. And that's the difficulty you have many times studying through this book, is you have words that are uh, only in Revelation or only used just sparingly any other place and trying to find a word study. And that makes it fun as you're studying through the book of Revelation at your home. You don't understand a certain word, just jot that down, start doing some cross-referencing, find other places where it may uh, give you cues as to what the word means and how it's used. But this is one of those. And uh, there's one in Matthew, one in Luke, both referring to vultures gathering for a feast. Uh, here John says, I looked I heard, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven. And uh, Revelation 14:6 says, John saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. So many say perhaps this is an angel. John looks up, it looks like an eagle, but it's an angel. Uh, we'll just go with what it says. It says it's an eagle, we'll go with an eagle. And uh, Revelation 19:17, John says he saw an angel standing in the sun, speaking to all the birds flying in mid-heaven. And this is uh, mid-heaven, it's just the zenith, it's way up in the sky where everyone can see. And so it appears to be a bird, it has to do with the sound of wind, in fact the word, uh, itos, has to do with the sound of wind, the Lord uses it to speak and give a message. And uh, I can identify that uh, with that eagle, can't you? A third of the sea has died, uh, a third of the ships have been destroyed, a third of the sea has been turned to blood, a third of the flowing water uh, has become undrinkable, a third of all the trees are destroyed. 
the earth has been burned, all the green grass, all these crazy eclipses and, and blackouts everywhere, all this is going on. Then the eagle comes and says, whoa, 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 you think? <laughs> I mean, they're just reeling with, with, the, uh, with the devastation. Many, many millions, thousands and uh, millions will be killed. And he says, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, I grew up out west, uh, many trips to California and back throughout uh, the time uh, that I was a, a youngster and all the way up as a young man. I took my senior trip, my unofficial senior trip with two of my guys from my youth group. Uh, at 18, we drove out to California, spent two weeks out there. So I've passed by this place. I'd like to put the slide up if you would, Grant. Uh, I passed by this place. This is the cert, uh, this is uh, a SETI uh, uh, compound. This is, those are all satellites. And you know where they're pointed? You probably know this, right? They're pointed towards heaven. They've been doing this for a long time, 25 years actually. Uh, what they've tried to do is listen for sounds from outer space. And I just think that's it's curious that uh, in the middle of the tribulation period, there's going to be an angel flying at the zenith of heaven, speaking as it were, from out of space to men. So everything that they've always hoped for, right, all the Hollywood movies, everything that they've desired to do, here's something from not, that's not from this planet. You won't need all of those uh, dishes to hear that. Everybody in the world, it says, will hear, woe, woe, woe on you because of the three trumpets that are ready to sound. But I just looked up, there's, believe it or not, there's a lot of articles out about this. March 12, 2010, USA Today. Uh, it says, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that's SETI, S-E-T-I, 25 years and counting. This year marks a double anniversary in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It was 25 years ago last month that the SETI Institute began its work to see if we were alone in the universe or one among many intelligences populating the stars. But the search goes back further still. It's been 50 years since Cornell University astronomer Frank Drake began Project Ozma, the groundbreaking work using the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia, and was the first to begin searching the skies for radio signals that might indicate life in other solar systems. Eleven years later, NASA approached astronomer Jill Tarter with the idea of Project Cyclops to use radio telescopes to look for signs of life 1,000 light years away. That project gave Tarter the idea for the SETI Institute, which she, Drake, and Thomas Pearson founded in 1985. The SETI Institute uses the Allen Telescope Array, which you see here in Northern California, to listen to the signals from space. A joint effort with the University of California at Berkeley, big surprise, that array currently includes 42 antennas. While it might sound like stuff of wild science fiction, the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, conducts a wide range of research, much of it for NASA. It's been instrumental in the emerging field of astrobiology, the study of the origin, evolution, distribution, and future of life in the universe, in NASA's words. SETI scientists also work with NASA on its Kepler project that searches for planets that could possibly support life. Others investigate life in extreme environments on Earth to consider what might be possible elsewhere. Why look? As Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison said in 1959 in the paper in the journal Nature, Quote, the probability of success is difficult to estimate, but if we never search, the chance of success is zero, end quote. It's an article by Elizabeth Wise. So understand, beloved, that 
people have been looking for these types of things. They've been worried about things striking the Earth. That's exactly what's going to happen. They've been looking for sounds from outer space, somebody to speak to them, uh, uh, some sign of intelligence from somewhere. That's exactly what's going to happen. Or an eagle, if you will, is going to fly through, and it's going to say, woe on you because uh, of what's still about to occur. So Hollywood and our humanistic scientific community, they've been waiting for something out of this world to talk to them, and they're going to get exactly what they've asked for. The messenger comes and says, whoa, you think it's bad now? Just wait till you hear the next three. You haven't heard anything. Now, let's look, if you would, Revelation 9, verse 1. And this is the fifth trumpet judgment. It's locusts from the pit. Locusts from the pit. And this is where it really gets interesting. If it didn't catch your attention now, wait till... Uh, the next few. This is just unbelievable. This is exactly what will happen. The Lord describes this very carefully, and uh, we understand this to be uh, the future for those who remain during the tribulation time. Verse 1, the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. Who is this? This is perhaps Lucifer, but likely it's a fallen demon. Lucifer is going to have a job and uh, be very busy, but this could be him. It could be likely a fallen demon, but we know uh, that Satan and one-third of the angels fell from heaven. This is uh, past tense. I saw, a star, uh, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. It had happened in the past. He understood that this was something that had occurred uh, sometime in, in the past. And the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. And you know who's in the bottomless pit? Bound demons. Bound demons are in the bottomless pit. I'd like you to turn, if you would, uh, Luke 8, 26. Would you do that? I'm going to have you stop three places because I want to get uh, kind of a reference point for us. This is one of those cool places where... You can kind of skip all around the New Testament and you can really be enriched in your study. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 26. I'm going to take you three places and then we'll talk about what we, what we looked at. All right? Luke chapter 8, verse 26. And we'll read through verse 31. And this is a very uh, story that perhaps is familiar to you. Uh, Jesus is uh, doing, going about his ministry. He takes a vote. Uh, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee, and he's going to meet uh, somebody here. And, uh, and let's just read there and let's see what they say. Verse 26, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, in which is opposite Galilee. Verse 27, when he came out in, onto the land, pardon me, Luke 8, verse 27, and when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Verse 28, now this is very important. Listen to what the demon says when they see Jesus. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, and this is not the man, this is the demon speaking, okay? What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? First of all, it's important to recognize that the demon knew exactly who Jesus was. And as you read through the New Testament, you realize that Jesus told the demons many times to be quiet and would not let them speak about him. He didn't want the testimony of himself to be carried on by demons. But anyway, this demon recognizes who he is. And then he says this, I beg you, do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break the bonds, and be driven by demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him, very important, not to command them to go away into where? The abyss. Now it's important to understand that. Now let's flip over, if you would, to Second Peter chapter two, verse four. Would you do that? Second Peter chapter two, verse four. 
This is the fun of just kind of chasing around uh, the Word of God as you come to a part and you say, okay, how about this pit? Do we have anything else about that? Actually, we have a lot. And uh, what does it say? And then you can really have some fun kind of uh, building up your understanding of the different words and their, and their context. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And here, uh, Peter is making some, uh, making some statements and helping us understand the doom of false teachers. And then he makes an illustration, and it's important in the illustration that we kind of look at this, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to where? What's your, what's your copy say? Okay, dungeons, pits of darkness, what else? Anybody have something different than that? Chains of darkness, okay. Reserved for judgment, all right? So he did not spare angels, but committed them to pits of darkness or chains of darkness or uh, a dungeon, okay? Now we're going to look at that word that's used there in just a minute, but look at Jude chapter uh, 1, of course, verse 6 and 7. If you look at Jude uh, 1, 6 and 7. And here the writer is commenting again on... Uh, on fallen angels, and he says this, verse 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds. I'm sorry, you're not there yet. Let me wait till you get there. Verse 6. This is an awesome section of scripture. I don't want you to miss it. Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So he, they did not keep their proper abode, not keep their own domain, okay? But they kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, I'm just going to make this parallel, and I'm not going to talk about it for any length of time. But I want you to look at the, at the jump that Jude makes here. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way, what same way? Well, did not keep their proper abode. Okay, this is important. Now listen, he's making a connection to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know why the cities were judged, correct? Okay, so he's making a connection. He's saying these demons did not keep their proper abode, just like the men in Sodom and Gomorrah for the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now I just want to make that note. I need you to understand that, that... Um, there's something about not keeping the proper domain, not keeping your proper abode. For demons in particular, it has to do with their inhabitants of humans. So a demon to inhabit a human, from the Lord's perspective, as we saw in a couple places already, they're not keeping their proper abode. They've moved from where they're supposed to be, and they've inhabited a human. And when Jesus came in contact with people who were demon-possessed, they would always say, you're not going to send us into the pit, are you? You're not going to torture us, are you? It's not time for you to torture us yet, is it? And, but they already knew that they were in the wrong place. They had left their proper abode. And Jude makes the parallel here. He says, listen, je- I want you to understand something. Just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, where the men didn't do what they were supposed to do, left the proper uh, uh, appetites that they should have had for women and lusted after men, in the same way, these angels, they did not keep their proper, uh, do their proper jobs and do what they were supposed to do either. And both of them have been locked in eternal punishment. Now, let's just comment on a couple of things we just read, Okay. Peter, in the passage in 2 Peter 2.4, uses a word called Tartarus as he, as he, as he thinks about um, this place where demons are kept. And what he's doing is he's borrowing a, a Greek word from Greek mythology where the most wicked were kept below Hades and hell. 
And it's important that we understand that because it gives us a little bit of a clue to perhaps what the other passages were speaking of. But apparently from the text, it's a place where fallen angels of Genesis 6. Now, um, we can look at Genesis 6. I want you to mark it in the margin of your Bible. Genesis 6 is a section of yours. Well, let's just look. That's fun. We're having a good time. Genesis chapter 6. And maybe there's been some confusion here. and this, uh, this might open it up for you. We're almost done, so we have just a minute. Now, this is uh, the years right prior to the flood. Lots of wickedness going on in the earth. The Lord says that every thought of men was continually wicked, constantly. And there's some corruption going on here. And so there's some other things going on here, too, in the spirit world. I want you to read about them. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 6. And these all tie together, and you'll see in just a minute why I say that. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he's also his flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were old men of renown. So two different kinds of groups spoken of here. The Nephilim, the giants, and then the offspring of angels and women. Okay? So you get the idea that you have uh, something going on here in the spirit world. These sons of God, these fallen angels, these are the ones the Lord created and have fallen. They have uh, cohabited with women, obviously in the bodies of men. Uh, and these are the types of folks that are being referred to when you look at Second uh, Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, and 7, you realize that those are who are being referred to. They did not keep their proper abode, but inhabited the, the, life, the, the, the men's bodies. And this is the same thing that happens as Jesus is on the earth. He's bumping into demons who are inhabiting men's bodies, and they know they're on the way to the pit because that's where they're going to be kept. And they're locked away for future punishment, Okay. And so here, that's, the, that's our context as you think about this and this passage and you think about this judgment, okay? So let's go back. Uh, Peter refers to Tartarus. It gives us an idea that this is a, a place that's in the deepest pit of hell, a place for the most wicked, and this is where these angels are kept who didn't keep their proper abode. It's also where the men of Sodom and Gomorrah found themselves because they also did not keep their own abode or what they were supposed to be doing. And this is a place for fallen angels. And Genesis 6 says that they cohabited with women by possessing the bodies of men before the flood. And they were cast there. And uh, it's where the demons of the New Testament, whom Jesus casted out, were on their way to. And it appears that whenever demons leave their normal state and inhabit the bodies of men, that's where they're cast. Okay? And that's just kind of an overview. There's lots more we can look at. And I encourage you to dig in more. But demons that are bound down there by God, these are there. And these are demons bound in the pit. And they can't get out. So they've been bound. They're not allowed to access the earth anymore, okay, because demons are allowed to do that, and they're uh, we're not bound, but these, guys, these particular ones are not. Now, if you think about this judgment now, uh, here are all these demons. They've been down here, some of them for centuries, a long time, something for more than 4,000 years, some before the flood, cast down into the pit, okay? So they've been down there a long time. And the key to the bottomless pit is going to get into the hands of Lucifer or a demon during this fifth trumpet, and he's going to go down, and he's going to unlock this pit. They say, well, hold on. The Lord put them down there to punish them. Yes, he did. And the Lord is allowed to use the things that he's created to bring judgment on men. And that's exactly what he's, what he's going to do with this judgment. He's going to use the things he's created to bring judgment on men. And you know what's going to happen? 
All of the bound demons, some of them have been bound down there for centuries and thousands of years. They are finally going to get out and they are just going to flood out of there. That's exactly what the scripture says. In fact, that's the picture it paints for us. Let's look there. Verse 2 of chapter 9 and we'll finish. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. There are going to be so many angels coming out of there at such a rapid rate because they've been released there temporarily to do their damage on earth and bring judgment on men that it's going to look like smoke blocking out the sky. And they're just going to gush out of there like a huge plague and they're going to sweep the earth. And I would just say we're going to close with that because we're out of time. You know why the tribulation is going to be a terrible time? Not just because the earth is going to be wrecked and there's going to be many, many things, catastrophes happening to it that men have feared all along. And not because they worry about all these natural things that go on and every time we have an earthquake, people are afraid and every time we have a tsunami, people wonder if this is the end and not because 2012 is predicted to be the end of the world and there's movies about it. That's not the main reason from my perspective why the earth is going to be a terrible place. The earth is going to be a terrible place because all the bound demons of hell are going to be turned loose and they're going to add to the ones who are already running around here currently to do their damage on people. And this is when, from my perspective, we, we go from a whole lot of really natural, uh, what we would call natural disasters, which may be perhaps explained away, to that really we see the hand of God in a very visible way, if seeing them in, like in a chronological order of all these things happening was not enough, we're going to see the spirit world come alive and be alive around us. Listen, you don't have to travel very far overseas to find people uh, who live in uh, tribes who, who understand the spirit world is very much alive and well. But in our country, we've pretty much categorized those types of people, those types of things, to the psych wards, haven't we? And we medicate them to death, and we set them aside in our cultures and make sure we don't interact with them. But listen, the demon world has never been quiet, okay? They've only been allowed to do what God has allowed them to do. Demons are, are, de are, are spirits with circles drawn around them. Whatever the Lord puts the fence, they can't do any more, but they can certainly do what's inside the boundary. But when we get into this tribulation time, particularly as we get into the trumpet judgments, and we're going to see all these demons coming out of the pit. Listen, things are really going to go downhill fast after that. And you'll see in the next several trumpets that are going to blow uh, just an amazing series of events that the Lord will cause to come about so that men will turn and repent and come to him. And we're going to see an angel flying around shortly that's going to say, turn and repent. Repent of your, of your sorceries. Repent of your drug use. Repent of your evilness and your immorality. And men will not because they love the sin more. And this is just really vindicates all of God's uh, everything God has ever said about the heart of men when we get into the tribulation period. So, we're going to see a description of these guys next week because we don't have time to get it today. So don't miss that. I think you will enjoy that. And as we look more into what the Lord has prepared uh, for this time of tribulation. Alright? Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. And uh, we'll go on our uh, way this evening. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can be in your word. We're grateful today to, for, to be a church that understands your truth understands that your word was written to be understood and to be studied and to be applied. We're grateful that you've promised blessing. We already are enriched tonight. Thank you for the fun of chasing around your word and, and looking for the clues that give us understanding of the passages. Thank you for the further study that it will uh, prompt even after this, both in my own life and those who uh, desire to know you more be uh, better and, and uh, know your word uh, more carefully. Lord, thank you for the great gift of salvation you've given to us, for opening our eyes and our hearts to understand and given us the faith to believe. We're grateful for the work of sanctification you desire to do. Please have that work and allow it to, uh, to go in the direction you desire it to and to the extent you desire it to in each of our lives. We give you praise today for the fellowship of the saints, for the joy of 
uh, being together today, all day. And I pray that you'll have us go through our week this week, uh, bringing honor and glorify, uh, glory to you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.